We're going to start in Mark chapter 6 today. It's a passage we've already looked at in our study of the Gospel of Mark, but we're looking at it from a different perspective this time. The idea to have a a day to honor mothers, it's a great idea. God's Word tells us to give honor to whom honor is due. It tells us to honor our fathers and our mothers. Our mothers deserve to be honored because of the many ways in which they shape the future. It's hard to tell exactly uh, the extent of a mother's impact upon her children. Mothers help shape their children's values. They help influence their child's life choices. Um, As a child of a mother, I, I can say that my mother had a... Massive impact on who I am and the way I am in my life. Since mothers have such an impact upon their children, every mother leaves a legacy behind. As a mother, you will leave a legacy behind. The legacy is in your children. The question is, what kind of legacy will you leave? We're going to compare this morning two very different mothers to see the kind of legacies they left behind. And what we want to do is we want to learn from the mistakes of one and we want to emulate the example of others, of the other. But before we get to it, I do want to say, while this is a Mother's Day message and it is a mother's legacy and we're looking at mothers, the idea of a legacy is something we should all think about. Mothers aren't the only ones who leave a legacy behind. Fathers leave a legacy behind. And we'll actually have a Father's Day message along the same lines on Father's Day in June. But it's not just mothers and fathers. We all leave one behind. And the question we should all think about is, what legacy will be left after my life? When I leave the earth, my time is up, what will I leave behind? What do I want to leave behind? And what am I doing to ensure that what I want to leave behind is what I'm leaving behind? Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our mothers. Thank you for our service and the opportunity we have to be here today. Let your word bear fruit in our hearts. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I would speak your word and your ways for your glory. Have your way in all of our hearts. Let Holy Spirit take the word, make it living and active in our lives. Let us think about it. All of us, the kind of legacy we're going to leave behind. Challenge us where we need challenging. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouraging. Strengthen us where we need strengthening. Just generally, you know what we need today. And you're able to meet every need of every person, no matter how diverse these needs are. So do what only you can do in all of our hearts and all of our lives. We ask in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. The first mother we're going to look at is a mother named Herodias. Now, I've had, I had several people kind of help me with my message. And all of them said this was not a, a unique choice of a mother to use on Mother's Day. So we'll see why. Turn to Mark 6, verse 14. should be 766. And, and we're not going to stand to read it. We're just going to kind of walk through this passage and, and learn some things. Mark 6 and 14. It says, And King Herod heard about it. He heard about Jesus casting out demons. For his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
But others were saying he's Elijah and others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard about it, he kept saying, it's John whom I beheaded. He has risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent men and had John arrested and bound in prison. Here's where our first mother comes in on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he had been protecting him. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, yet he used to enjoy listening to him. An opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, held a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading people of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately, she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry because of his oath and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl who gave it to her mother. Now clearly Herodias is not our good example for the day. However, it's important to look at her and realize that Herodias left behind a legacy as well. She left behind an ungodly legacy. And it's important to look at the sort of ungodly legacy this terrible mother left behind. Because while it's wise to learn from our own mistakes, it's wiser to learn from the mistakes of others. And to be sure, Herodias made some horrendous mistakes As a mother, I don't think any mother anywhere in the world would look at Herodias and say, that's who I want to be as a mom. However, I do think it's possible that for any of us, that we could unintentionally make the same sort of mistakes that Herodias make and leave the same sort of ungodly legacy behind that she left. And I want to, initially I was going to kind of just give some characteristics of an ungodly legacy, but I, I want the message to be more kind of on point. So I, I want to give you three steps. If you want to leave an ungodly legacy behind, do these three things, guaranteed you will leave an ungodly legacy behind. Number one, set a sinful example for your children. But if you set a sinful example for your children, you can be sure that you will leave an ungodly legacy behind. Because it's natural for children to follow in their parents' footsteps. It has been said that what parents do in moderation, their children will take to excess. And if we are setting a sinful example for our children, we should not be shocked when they are then involved in sinful activities. In fact, they will most likely be shocked if we are upset by the things that they're doing. 
If we are actively living in sin, justifying our sin, our children will assume sin is okay. But notice the several ways that Herodias set a sinful example. First, she was an adulteress. Right? She had had an affair with her brother's husband. And then she had left her husband for his brother. Sexual immorality was a part of the sinful example she left for her child. Also, we notice in this chapter, she did not like John the Baptist. She didn't like him because he preached against her sin. He called out her adultery. He would not make exceptions for what they were doing because they were important and influential people. And so if she was ever around where she could hear John the Baptist or see him or his name came up, she would probably gripe and she would probably complain. She would probably say mean things about him because who did he think he was to say her adultery was wrong? That seems awful judgmental to say that her sin was sin, something God was not okay with. The entire time, Herodias' daughter, that her life crossed paths with John the Baptist, what she heard was her mother run down this man. And she ran him down because because John the Baptist preached against her sinful actions. Now keep in mind, John's message was straight from God's word. One of the, the main commandments of God's law in Exodus 20. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And so John was preaching God's word. Herodias did not like it, held a grudge and hated him. And what this communicated to Herodias' daughter was that her mom's adultery was okay. What this communicated to Herodias' daughter what was more than just that her mom's adultery was okay, but that sin was okay. It communicated to her daughter that not only was sin okay, but anyone who said sin was bad, that person was actually bad. What her mother communicated to her daughter through her attitude and her actions was that evil is good and good is evil. Rebelling against what God's word says is a sin. Are we setting a sinful example to our families? Are we living in willful disobedience to God and his word? If we are, we are on the path to leaving behind an ungodly legacy. Second, not only set a sinful example for your children, encourage your children to sin. Now, Herod's court was given to the kind of excesses we read in this. Historical data about Herodias' daughter indicates that the daughter that this likely was, potentially her name was Salome, and she was 12 to 14 years old. And in verse 
24, she went out to ask her mother what to ask for after she had done this dance. But what happened before the dance occurred? Herod would not have taken it upon himself to have his niece come and do this lust-inducing dance before him and his perverted friends. He had to have gotten mom's permission first. Mom gave her consent for her to go and dance in the sort of lust-inducing kind of dance that would have inspired the kind of response from Herod that we saw. I mean, think about what we're seeing. Here we have a a mother of a preteen or early teenage girl encouraging her daughter to go and perform an immoral, lust-inducing dance for her uncle and her uncle's friends. She encouraged her to sin. Now, why does Herodias... Encouraging her daughter to sin matter. Why does, if we encourage or we excuse our children's sin, why is this on the path to leaving an ungodly legacy? Well, because God's word says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I won't spend time explaining the different sins listed. We all know what they are. They're pretty self-explanatory and they're very common in our world today. They're so common that, that many times parents will justify their child living in that sort of a sin with something along the lines of, well, kids are, are going to be kids. You, you can't expect children to live really like what you would call a holy life. Kids are going to experiment and, and they're going to do these sort of things. And, and it's okay because they're kids. Some parents even encourage their children To be a part of these activities. With the same logic that kids are going to be kids. And so it's going to be okay. Now to get an idea. We won't have time to look at it this morning. But read sometime this week. Romans 1 verses 18 through 32. And to notice what God says about those who approve. And encourage people to live in sin. Uh, Spoiler, it's not good. Now, what's truly tragic about this is that we are told in this passage that those who live in these sort of lifestyles, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But to put it in context of what we might say, they won't go to heaven or they're not saved. And as we look at this verse, and there's many like it. We have to understand there's no clause given. There's no asterisk that says unless it's kids being kids and then they're the exception to the rule. God, through his word, just says those who live in these sort of lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God. They do not go to heaven, whether they're kids 
being kids, or whether they're adults being adults, there is no exception. I've often wondered how many young people are going to die and go to hell because mom and dad excused, accepted, or even worse, encouraged their children to take part in sinful activities that kept them out of the kingdom of God. The late pastor J.C. Ryle gave a piece of parenting advice we should all take to heart. This is the thought that should be the uppermost in your mind and in all you do for your children. And every step you take about them and every plan and scheme and arrangement that concerns them. Do not leave out that mighty question. How will this affect their souls? And if you're excusing your child's sin, worse yet, you're encouraging your child to sin. You are setting out to leave an ungodly legacy behind. And then the third way to be sure we leave an ungodly legacy, set a sinful example, encourage your children to sin, and then just, just be selfish. Just ensure you're the center of the universe and everything revolves around you. We see this in Herodias. Her daughter went to her. Her daughter had been promised anything Herod had up to half his kingdom. She went to her mom and said, Mom, what do I do? What do I ask for? Now, her mom could have said ask for houses and lands and money and titles and all of these things that would set her daughter up for life. She didn't do any of that. She said, rather, tell Herod to kill John the Baptist. In this moment, what Herodias cared about most was herself. She used her daughter. She exploited her daughter to settle a score with somebody she didn't like. She used her daughter to hurt someone she did not like. And she made her daughter an accomplice in murder. Because what Herodias wanted was more important than anything else. Really everything about Herodias' life was characterized by selfishness. She had an affair with her brothers, with her husband's brother because... That was more important than her vows. She left her husband for his brother because her pleasure and her desire for Herod's power was more important than her vows. She hated John the Baptist because his preaching exposed her sinful activities. And when she could have given her daughter advice to set her up for life, she chose instead to focus on her own selfish desires and use her daughter to get even with someone she did not like selfishness is contrary to our, the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to be the suffering servant who died for the sins of others. He put our need for salvation ahead of everything else and willingly went to the cross, suffered horribly on our behalf. And while selfishness 
is contrary to the example of Jesus. It is part and parcel to leaving behind an ungodly legacy. Well, now that we've seen the kind of parent we don't want to be and the actions we don't want to take. Let's look at a different example. Turn to 2 Timothy 1, page 914, hopefully in the Pew Bible. Second Timothy 1, 3 through 5. We're really going to focus on verse 5, but just to get context, we'll read verses 3 through 5. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure... It's in you as well. I love this passage. Verse 5. Because it shows generational impact of a godly example. Sincere faith first dwelt in the grandmother Lois. Who did some things apparently right. And and passed that faith on to her daughter Eunice. Who then did some things right. And passed that faith on to her son Timothy. Timothy had received a godly legacy from his grandmother down to his mother, down into him. From this verse and one other, we'll look at this passage in this chat, in this book. We're going to see three principles for leaving a godly legacy behind. So if we want to leave an ungodly legacy, we do those three things. Guaranteed we will. We want to leave a godly legacy behind. Then first, strive for personal godliness. Strive for godliness first. If we want to leave a godly legacy, we we kind of have to be godly ourselves. Paul mentions the faithfulness of Timothy's grandmother and his mother. When we first meet Timothy and his mother in Acts 16 and 1, Luke tells us Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who believed in Jesus. Eunice, as a godly Jewish mother, had set a faithful and consistent example for her son, As she raised him. The start of a godly legacy begins with a faithful, godly example. One of the things I learned quickly as a youth pastor and quickly as a parent is children will pick up on our inconsistencies often quicker than we do. Children really aren't as interested in how teary our testimonies are. Far more interested in how consistent our lives are. We can come into church. We can raise our hands. We can say all sorts of spiritual things. Do all sorts of spiritual things. But if when we go home, what we do there is not consistent with what we do here. That is what will be most noticed by our children. This is why we have to strive for personal godliness. The Bible tells us to strive for personal godliness. We're told to stay away from worthless stories that are typical of old women, but rather discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We don't have time to deep dive the passage, but just three quick truths that we need to know about this. Right. First, we have to be disciplined if we want to be godly. Right. Notice it says discipline. This is 
Intentional, disciplined effort on our part is required to be godly. Being godly requires us to be disciplined in our lives, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus. It requires us to be disciplined to do spiritual disciplines that will produce godliness. Disciplines like being faithful to church, reading our Bible ourselves, praying to God, fasting, sharing the gospel, serving others. All of these are are needed spiritual disciplines that help produce godliness within us. But the discipline comes not in doing those things once, but doing them over and over and over again. We have to be disciplined if we want to be godly. But not only do we have to be disciplined, we have to be responsible. Because notice he says, discipline yourself. Who's responsible for my godliness? Who's responsible for your godliness? I am entirely responsible for my godliness. Now, my wife is a wonderful, godly wife, but she could be the worst heathen in Texas County. The most ungodly, Herodias type woman on the planet. And my godliness or lack thereof is still entirely my responsibility. It's the same with you. Absolutely nobody on the planet outside of you is responsible for your personal godliness. Now, you can have friends that encourage you. You can have accountability partners. You can get together with friends and study the Bible. You can be faithful to small groups and all of those kinds of things. But in the end, it's up to you. You have to put in the work. You have to read your Bible. You have to be the one to pray. No one can pray for you and bada bing, bada boom, you're godly. You have to do it. You and I are entirely responsible for our level of godliness. But we need to be disciplined. We need to be responsible. But then we need to be focused because it says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So it's not discipline for the sake of discipline. It's not responsible for the sake of responsibility. There's a goal in mind. It is to be godly. Chuck Swindoll explains godliness like this. A godly person is one who ceases to be self-centered in order to become God-centered. Christ became a man. And as a result of his earthly ministry, we see how God intended for humans to behave. Jesus is our unblemished example of godliness. Therefore, a godly person is a Christ-like person. Our goal as Christians is to become like Christ. And I don't have time to get into it, but notice just quickly. Godliness is profitable now and in the world to come. And that's contrasted with bodily training, which is beneficial now. How often do we focus on our physical health but neglect our spiritual health? Spiritual health, that's not saying spiritual health or physical health is unimportant. It's saying in the big scheme of things, spiritual health is much more important because it benefits us in this life and in the life to come. Physical health just benefits us a little bit now. Leaving behind a godly legacy begins by setting a godly example. And we'll have to set a godly example. We must strive for personal godliness. Second, we encourage your children to serve Jesus. 
When Paul went to Lystra, he met a godly woman named Eunice and her son, Timothy. And what he found in Timothy was a young man already active in serving Jesus. And I think the implication in the passage is that Eunice had encouraged her son to serve the Lord. Her encouragement worked because he became an active partner of the Apostle Paul. So much so that he was one of Paul's most trusted friends, a fellow servant. Paul said he had no one like Timothy and all his companions. It was his mother's influence, I believe. Every parent should actively encourage their children to serve Jesus. Now, one thing to be sure of is that we're showing them, we're teaching them that serving Jesus is a blessing, not a burden. This is one of the main lessons I got from my mom as a young man. Sunday evening, and I was playing with a friend across the road, and my mom called. It was time to go home, so I told my friend, i gotta, I got to go home, i got to go to church. I went home and I told mom, I said, hey, I was over there playing with David and I told him, I got to go, I got to go to church. I'll never forget it. Mom stopped and she said, you don't have to go to church. And boy, that was an exciting thought. Great. This is the best night ever. She said, you get to go to church. Which to my 12 year old mind basically meant I had to go to church, but I didn't get to gripe about it. But that point always stuck with me. That was always the thought mom had. We, we got to go to church. We, we got to read our Bible. We got to, to serve Jesus. It wasn't something that we had to do. You know, if we gripe and complain every time we go to serve Jesus, to go to church, to take part in an outreach, to come to a work day or do anything, our kids are going to see that. And it's going to speak volumes to them. And they're going to see all of that as a burden, not a blessing. So encouraging your children to serve Jesus is more than saying serve Jesus. It's setting an example that what a, what a privilege it is to get to serve our Lord. So strive for personal godliness. Encourage your children to serve Jesus. And then teach your children God's Word. Godly legacy is left through God's Word. Look at 2 Timothy 3.15. Paul writing to Timothy says... And from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Timothy had been taught God's word from a child. This is a huge part of what led him to faith in Jesus and led him to become a servant of the Lord Jesus. Now, from what we know, it was Timothy's mom who taught him God's word. Timothy's dad was Greek. Probably, whether he was a believer or not, I don't know. It never says. But Timothy's dad wouldn't have had the, the knowledge, the far-reaching knowledge of God's word that a Jewish woman being raised in the synagogue would have had. Timothy had been taught God's word from a child by his mother. You know, God's word expects that as parents... We're to be the primary Bible teacher for our children. What our kids learn in, in Sunday school, youth group, children's church, things like that. It's meant to reinforce what's being first taught in home. 
We need to teach our kids God's word. A godly legacy will really only be left through the word of God. Now, years ago, when I was first preaching, I would have ended the message right here. And I would have said something like, which one are you? Are you Herodias or are you Eunice? And then I would have just let the weight of the message set and we would have gone on. But getting older changes things. Being a parent changes things, right? Being a parent humbles you in ways that not being a parent you can't really understand. Because one of the things you learn after 22 years of parenting wild Philistines in your home is no parent has ever fully been the godly example they wish they could have been. I don't know a parent of grown children who hasn't at some point said something like, if I could go back, there are so many things I would do differently. And the ways we've fallen short can be sources of stress, guilt, and self-condemnation. For those like me who understand that, I want to give you some hope today. I want to end the message on a hopeful tone because hope comes from Jesus. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he'd be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We don't have time to do a deep dive into this. But this passage is ultimately about God's redemption of people. Not just, we often think of redemption as God redeems our souls. But God is bigger than that. Yes, He redeems our souls. And don't ever think that's a minor thing. To redeem my soul from hell and take me to heaven when I die. Woo! Glory! That's good stuff. But God is a redeemer of all things. Not just our souls, but our lives and our choices and our circumstances. Notice what it says. It says He, he foreknew. In eternity past, before God created the world, He knew all about us. He knew He would create us. He knew our strengths. He knew our weaknesses. He knew our mistakes. He knew our sin and our rebellion. God has always known everything there is to know about each and every one of us. But God not only foreknew, he, he also predestined. Predestined means preplanned. The God who knew us in eternity past, before the foundations of the world, had plans for our lives. Think about that. God has always had a plan for your life. Now the ultimate fulfillment of this plan is seen there for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. This is God's ultimate plan for each and every one of us to be like Jesus. But then if we go back to the top of the verse, it says 
All things work together for good. Now notice, careful here. This doesn't say all things are good. Some things are not good. It doesn't say all things that happen to us in life are good. Some things that happen to us in life were probably very bad. It doesn't say everything we do is good. Many of the things we've done in life were not at all good. Instead, what it says is all things work together for our good. But again, let me be clear of what our good is. Our ultimate good is the fulfillment of God's plan for us to be like Jesus. So all things in life, all things that have happened to us, all things we've experienced, all the things we've done can work together for our ultimate good of being like Jesus. But also notice that it doesn't just happen this way because it says God causes. Things don't just drift for our good. God causes them to be for our good. All things in life, all that's happened to us and all we've done, they don't just coincidentally, luck of the draw, work out for our ultimate good of being like Jesus. The sovereign God who rules over all creation causes these things to work out for our ultimate good of being like Jesus. Now, here's how this works for a legacy, a mother's legacy, a father's legacy, anyone's legacy. God is bigger than all the ways we've blown it as parents. Maybe there have been times in our life where we were far more like Herodias than Eunice. Take heart. God is bigger than our mistakes and he will redeem them for our good and his glory. Maybe we've strived to be like Lois and Eunice, but at times have fallen miserably short of our goal. Take heart. God is bigger than our failings and will redeem all things and cause them to be used for our good, for his glory. Your legacy as a mother, our legacy as parents, our, our legacy as disciples of Jesus does not have to be defined by our worst moments and our biggest mistakes. Because God is bigger than our worst moments. God is bigger than our greatest mistakes. And He can redeem all things and cause them to work together for our good and His glory. In fact, one of the greatest promises in all of God's Word, Joel 2.25 it tells us that God can restore the years that have been eaten up. Now, you have to read the book to get the context, but it's a think about it. Eaten up years, eaten up by mistakes, years, eaten up by sin, years, eaten up by circumstances. God can not only redeem those, but he can restore those years. God doesn't leave us to be defined by our failures. Rather, he brings good out of our failures. God doesn't leave us to be defined by the circumstances inflicted upon us. Rather, he brings good out of those circumstances. However, 
there is a condition for the promise. This promise is not for all people everywhere. Look carefully at who can claim this promise for themselves. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To who? To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. To those who love God. Now, loving God is, is not just our words. Loving God is, is seen and not said. Take some time, read John 14 this week. Jesus says, those who love God keep his commandments. And those who don't love God don't keep his commandments. Now, that's just Jesus. That's not even an interpretation. That's literally just what Jesus says. This is why I say loving God is seen and not said. Saying we love God is easy. Showing we love God in the way Jesus said we're to show we love God is something altogether different. So the promise of God redeeming all things and causing them to be used for our good and his glory, it's not for all people. It is only for those who love God, who love God in a way that it's seen in their devotion to God and in the ways they live for God. And for those who are called according to his purpose. You can't separate loving God from being called according to his purpose. Because you can't be one without the other. You, you can't really love God in the way Jesus said we're to love God without being called by God to fulfill his purpose. And in the same way, those who are called by God and are fulfilling his purpose for them will naturally love God. So what does it mean to be called according to his purpose? Well, the ultimate purpose is for us to be like Jesus. So to be called according to his purpose means that we've heard God's call to come to him through Jesus. And we have answered that call through repentance and faith. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Repentance starts by recognizing God's right. We're wrong. Which for us as humans, prideful humans, that's a hard thing to accept. We've sinned. Our sin is against God. Our sin is serious. Our sin makes us guilty. Our sin prevents us from being righteous. Our sin keeps us out of heaven. Our sin cannot be fixed by us. That's the, I mean, that's bottom level, basement level repentance right there. And if we can't accept those things, we've not repented. But when we realize that God is right about those things and that we've been wrong, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. And the change of life is ultimately a belief in Jesus. The sinless life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection of Jesus. To believe in Jesus is, is more than to believe there was a guy named Jesus who lived and died. It is to believe Jesus and who he is and what he's done is the only basis for our salvation. To make all of that personal, Jesus just didn't die for sin. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead on my behalf. Jesus' death and resurrection is the only hope for salvation I have. 
There are no good works I have done or can do that will merit my salvation. Listen, again, this is basement level belief. If in your mind, and I want to be clear, I don't want to be harsh, but I want to be clear. If there is anything in your mind that says you earned your salvation, that you have been good enough, that you have worked hard enough, that you have contributed to your salvation, anything other than the sin which made it necessary, you're not saved. Salvation is only in Christ. And until we can humble ourselves and say, nothing but Jesus saves me, we stay separated from Christ. So this morning, if you're thinking you can do it, or you've done it, or you've helped, your self-righteousness is keeping you from Christ and all the salvation He offers. And if you cannot humble yourself, And let go of your self-righteousness. And if you cannot humble yourself and let go of your self-sufficiency, you will never, ever be saved. Faith is letting go of those things. And it is saying that Jesus alone is the reason I'm saved. That when I make it to heaven and I stand before the Lord... All the glory and all the honor and all the praise for my life and my salvation and my being in heaven will go to Jesus who has saved me. And not to me in any way, shape, form or fashion. We get no glory for our salvation. Only Jesus does. Read 1 Corinthians 1 to see it toward the end of the chapter. Well, I mean, if we change our mind about God and sin, we believe that this Jesus has saved us alone. And I couldn't help but live for that guy. I mean, that's going to be the natural response. I'm going to live for the one who has done so much for me. He delivered me. He saved me. He pulled me from the fires and, and he did it. He's going to chart the course in my life. I'm going where he wants me to go no matter what that is. These are individual responses that each one of us must make for ourselves. You must be the one to repent. You must be the one to believe. You must be the one to follow where Jesus leads. No one can do it for you. All of these are a necessary part of what it means to be called according to God's purpose for us. But if we love God... We've answered his call for his purpose for us. Then we can claim this promise. That God will redeem everything in our lives. And he will use it for our good. And he will use it for his glory. So I I do want to ask though. What legacy are you on track to leave behind right now? Moms. Dads, grandparents, uncles, aunts, brothers, sisters, disciples of Jesus. What legacy are you on track to leave at the moment? What legacy do you want to leave behind? A godly legacy. It won't be left behind easily. And it won't be left behind accidentally. 
It will take deliberate, decisive, and often unpopular actions on all of our parts if we want to leave a godly legacy behind. And it begins by being sure we're called according to God's purpose. I have repented. I have believed. I am following Jesus. And if you have never called on Jesus to save you, if you have never answered God's call on your life, do that today. Zero things are more important or more urgent than you answering this call today. Let's stand.